I hope you're still with us. I hope Hebrews 9 uh, didn't scare you away. Uh, today we come to Hebrews chapter 10. In the first part of the chapter, the author wraps up the conclusions he's been arguing for the last few chapters, namely that Jesus is a greater is greater than Moses. He's greater uh, than the high, that he's a greater high priest than the Levitical priest. He he offers a better sacrifice, that is himself than the sacrifices offered under the Old Covenant, and that the Old Covenant itself is giving way to a better and more lasting covenant, that is, the New Covenant. Well, since we've given so much detailed attention to all these matters in previous chapters, let's, let's take notice of a few other things of note here in chapter 10. And Here's the first thing that, it, that we can see here, and that is that the Bible uh, is, in a sense, a divine book. It's not that the Bible is is God, it's, but it's God's Word. We as Christians believe that the Bible is not an ordinary book. We believe that the Bible, the words of the Bible are, are, are inspired by God Himself, so that when we read it, we're not just reading the words of men, but the words of God. Why do we believe that? We, we believe it first and foremost because it is the clear and overwhelming testimony of Scripture itself. Now, some may see this as a circular argument. Why do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Because the Bible says so. Is that circular? Is that arguing in a circle? But really, every argument for something as a highest authority is circular. If we say, why do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? If we, gave, if we pointed to something else, if I appealed to something else as a proof of the point, then whatever it was that I appealed to would actually be the highest authority, <laughs> right? If someone wanted to say that human reason was our highest authority, to what to what would you appeal to prove it? <laughs> I mean, if, if you make a logical argument to prove that point, then you're using reason to prove reason is the highest authority, a circular argument. If, though, you use a historical argument to prove the point, then, in fact, you would be proving historical testimony to be the highest authority rather than human reasoning, since you feel that historical testimony carries more weight and is more conclusive than human reasoning. So, too, to appeal to the Bible to prove that the Bible is our highest authority, though circular, is only right, since to appeal to something else would undermine the argument being made. So we believe that the Bible is the, is the Word of God because it is the clear testimony of the Bible itself. There are a couple of overwhelming and obvious examples. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. In 2 Peter 2.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Passages like those don't leave any doubt, really, in asserting the scripture's testimony that they are divine in character. But there's another kind of evidence of this truth that is found again and again in the book of Hebrews, and we see clear examples of that here in chapter 10. In verse 5, the author says, Consequently, when Christ, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then he quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8 in the following verses. Now, you can scour the gospels, and every word Jesus ever spoke during his earthly life and ministry recorded for us, and you won't find him speaking the words of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Rather, 
the author of Hebrews is doing something quite remarkable. He is quoting Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which King David wrote a thousand years before Christ. King David wrote those words, and he's saying in, in Hebrews that actually Christ was saying that. That's amazing. Christ was speaking these words through David. So Psalm 40, 6 through 8 is, is provided as an example to show that while they were David's words, they weren't merely David's words, but God's, Christ's through David. A second example of this is also given in verse 15. The author says, quote, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. And then he quotes uh, Jeremiah 31 again. So while it was Jeremiah who was the instrument in writing these words, it was God the Holy Spirit speaking them through Jeremiah. But how did that actually happen? How did that inspiration of Scripture actually happen? If you'll let me, give me just a minute, I, I don't know that I can explain to you how that great mystery happened, but some people have the idea that when the Bible says men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that maybe God just dictated to them the words to say or that they heard the voice from heaven or that an angel appeared to them and they just wrote down what they heard. But I think the, the late 19th and early 20th century theologian B.B. Warfield gives us a helpful way to, to think about how God miraculously brought about these, these spirit-inspired scriptures that are exactly his words, but also the words of the men who wrote them. He says, and I'll quote, There is the preparation of the men to write these books to be considered, a preparation physical, intellectual, spiritual, which must have attended them throughout their whole lives, and indeed must have had its beginning in their remote ancestors, and the effect of which was to bring the right men to the right places at the right times, with the right endowments, impulses, acquirements, to write just the books which were designed for them. In other words, if God wished to give his people a series of letters like Paul's, he prepared a Paul to write them. And the Paul he brought to the task was a Paul who would spontaneously write just such letters. That was from B.B. Uh, Warfield's uh, book on the inspiration of Holy Scripture. So our belief and trust in the, the Bible as the Word of God is not founded on scant evidence or a flimsy foundation. What the Bible says, God says. Well, a uh, second thing you might see in Hebrews 10 is a strong exhortation in Hebrews 10, through 25 that pertains to the importance of meeting together regularly as a church. The first exhortation is given in verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a true heart of full, in full assurance of faith. Second exhortation is given in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And finally, a third exhortation given in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Those are three things that every Christian must strive to do. Draw near to God with a sincere heart of faith, hold fast to the faith, and stir up your brothers and sisters in Christ to do the same. Well, how should we begin to do that? We're told in verse 25 to do it by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is a biblical fact that if you neglect church attendance and the means of grace you find there, you will stray in your walk with Christ. You will neglect to put yourself in a position 
to receive those means of grace. That is, hearing the preaching and teaching of God's Word, receiving the encouragement and fellowship of the believers, etc. Those are the things that keep you on the right path and help you fulfill those three exhortations listed earlier. So simply put, go to church. (laughs) Plan the other things in your life around church, not church around the other things in your life. Hear me on that. I'll say it again. Plan the other things in your life around church, not church around the other things in your life. Well, finally, there's another warning in this chapter that has uh, perplexed a lot of people. Hebrews 10.26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. Now, there are some believers in certain denominations who believe that it is possible to lose one's salvation, but we're not among them. We've seen time and time again that the clear teaching of Scripture is that one who is truly born again will persevere uh, in faith until the end and, and cannot nor will not ever fall away and lose that salvation. For this reason, verses like Hebrews 10.26 have been puzzling to many. If that's the case, though, it's really just a matter of missing the forest because of the tree. Uh, consider Uh, Again, the broader context of the whole letter is addressed to those who have made an outward profession of faith in Christ, but were tempted to uh, return to Judaism, and possibly those who were still in Judaism but were beginning to be intrigued by Christianity and were tempted to walk away from it. To these, the author is saying in Hebrews 9.26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that is, if you go back on back to Judaism and try to find your salvation through the keeping of the law and the offering of animal sacrifices despite God's command through those things to look to Jesus for salvation, that's on that basis, he says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, there will not be a provision for your salvation anywhere outside of Christ. This verse is not saying you can benefit savingly from the sacrifice of Christ for your sins then deliberately sin a certain number of times, though that number is never given, and lose that saving benefit you previously had. That is too narrow a view and neglects the context of the whole uh, letter. This is a warning against looking anywhere else other than Christ for salvation and atonement for your sins. It's not there. Only Christ, only in Christ, do we find that. Just a few thoughts from Hebrews chapter 10.